Welcome to the Evidence-Based Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Kathy Thompson. I'm a nurse infopreneur and creator of the website nursingeducationexpert.com. I am also faculty at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and Indiana University in Indianapolis. Welcome. This is a continuation of the podcast series, An Introduction to Clinical Statistics for Evidence-Based Practice. This is part two. In this part, we'll talk about measures of clinical significance that look at differences in group outcomes. We'll talk about the truth about p-values and what confidence intervals are, And then we'll talk about risks and risk estimates, along with measures of effect and measures of clinical effectiveness. So let's get started. We're going to start off doing a quick review of the difference between p-values and confidence intervals. Benjamin Disraeli said, there are three types of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Research is an uncertainty. We do research because we don't have the answers to questions. So we have to become comfortable with a certain level of uncertainty. In research, we use statistics to make statements about the larger population. We're always dealing with imperfect information. That is, we don't know what the true population value is. The only way you can really get the population value is to measure everyone in the population. But even if that was possible, it really is a waste of resources. So what we try to do is to take a representative sample from the target population. And, And the statements are based on information from a sample a small but carefully selected subset of the population that we're interested in. However, no matter how carefully the sample is selected to be a fair and unbiased representation of the population, relying on information from a sample will always lead to some level of uncertainty. The researcher is the one who decides on the level of uncertainty that they're willing to tolerate. Samples are an estimation, therefore, for the population. A statistic is also only an estimate. Therefore, if you drew a different sample, you'd get a different value. The p-value, also known as the alpha level or the level of significance, is the value at which you reject the null hypothesis. So you're saying, how much evidence do you have against the null hypothesis? And it is a single cutoff point. P is short for probability. Remember that this is an arbitrary value. The researcher chooses the alpha level. Most researchers set the alpha level at P is less than 0.05. When the stakes are higher, such as, let's say, in a drug study, you might see the alpha level set as P is less than 0.01, or even P is less than 0.001 or less. Realize that p-values do not tell you how precise a result is. It only tells you if the result that you got was likely to have happened by chance. This is known as the all or none principle. And this is crucial for you to understand. All the p-value tells you is how likely a difference as large as the one reported in the study was merely a result of chance. So a p-value in the significant range will tell you either that there's a real difference between the groups. It can tell you that the effect size is very big. So even if you have a very small sample, if you have a very large effect size, then you can find statistical significance. Or it can tell you that the sample size is very, very big, even if the effect, the clinical effect, is very, very tiny and even unlikely to change practice. So an example of this are some of those drug studies that have got thousands and thousands of participants. In that case, the sample size is so big that even a very, very tiny effect will come out as a statistically significant effect, even though it may not be clinically significant. Now, a non-significant p-value tells you that either there's no difference between the groups 
or that there were too few subjects in the sample to demonstrate a difference if one really exists. So this is where we talk about the sample size not being large enough. So if you have a very small sample size, but if your effect size is not very large, then a small sample is not going to show you that difference. So if you don't have enough subjects in your sample to uh, show a difference if one really exists, then you're going to get a non-significant p-value. The key here is that whether your p-value is significant or not significant, and here are some reasons why it could be either or, the p-value does not tell you which one of these things is true. And that's just really, really important to understand. Now that we analyze our data with computers, realize that statistical programs we use will give us an actual p-value instead of just a less than 0.05 result. For example, you might see a p-value of 0.028 reported, or 0.052, or 0.28, for example. You will most likely see the actual result reported. We still interpret those statistical significance of that result as compared to the alpha level that's set by the researcher. For example, if the statistical test result gives you a p-value of 0.028, this would be considered statistically significant if the alpha level or the p-value was set at p is less than 0.05, right? Because 0.028 is less than 0.05. In that case, the researcher would be able to say, my result is statistically significant. However, if the researcher had set the alpha level at p is a p level of less than 0.01, then a p of 0.028 would not be statistically significant because in that case, 0.028 is greater than 0.01. So don't be fooled into thinking that a p-value of 0.001 is less significant than a p-value of 0.0001. All this result tells you is that the study result with the p-value of 0.0001 is 100 times less likely to be a result of chance than the p-value of 0.001. Again, it doesn't tell us precision. It tells us how likely is that the result we got a result of chance. So it's important to know whether a result is statistically significant or not, because in that case, you don't want to draw false conclusions from your studies if your sample is too small to be able to show that. However, statistical significance doesn't tell you the most important thing, and that's the size of the effect. What you will see nowadays and what you're seeing more and more often is that you may see a p-value reported or you may not, but if, even if you see a p-value reported, what you should be looking for is the confidence interval because the confidence interval is the estimate of that results likely margin of error, plus or minus. And that's going to give you more information to make your conclusions off of. Now, it is possible to use our sample to calculate a range within which the population value is likely to fall. And this is called the confidence interval. And you want to have a picture in your mind of the normal bell curve, remember? One standard deviation is 34% to either side of that mean, right? To the left and to the right. So plus or minus one st standard deviation covers then 68% of the curve. Plus or minus two standard deviations covers 95% of the curve. A confidence interval is the range of plausible numerical values in which we can be confident to the computed probability, either 90%, that would be a 90% confidence interval, or 95%, that would be a 95% confidence interval, that the population value being estimated will be found. Confidence intervals indicate the strength of the evidence. The smaller the confidence interval, the better. Wide confidence intervals indicate less precise estimates of effect, and they're usually the result 
of an underpowered study, meaning that the sample was way too small. Larger sample sizes equal more precision, and that will equal a smaller confidence interval. The values at each end of the interval are called the confidence limits, and all the values in between the confidence lim limits make up the confidence interval. You actually interpret the upper and the lower levels of the confidence intervals, and you interpret them separately. The lower or numerically smaller limit shows how small the effect might be in the population. The upper limit shows how large the effect might be. The confidence interval is now the preferred statistic in research because it gets around that all or none idea behind the p-values, and it can be calculated for almost any test. As evidence-based practice gets a hold in nursing, you're going to start seeing the confidence interval reported more and more in the nursing literature. For an example, in a study of 64 subjects, the correlation between height and weight was 0.68. Now, this is a correlation coefficient. So you know correlation coefficients go from 0 to 1, right? And so that result of 0.68 would be plotted on this line, uh, obviously, it would be plotted at wherever 0.68 would fall between uh, 0.5 and, and 1 on the correlation coefficient axis. And if we said the likely range or the confidence interval is 0.52 to 0.79, then the way you would interpret that is to say, in this particular study, height and weight were correlated. And you can see that you would interpret that at, as increased height correlates with increased weight. The correlation coefficient was 0.68. But the confidence interval was 0.52 to 0.79. So the lower confidence interval would tell us the minimal correlation between height and weight. And you can see that that's only 0.52, so just at about 50%. So that's not quite saying that it says height and weight are correlated, but just because you're tall doesn't mean you're going to weigh more. The upper confidence interval was 0.79. So that's the maximal amount of correlation that height and weight were highly correlated. Then you're almost at 80% that the taller you are, the more, the more likely you are to weigh more. So to interpret a, a, a confidence interval, you really have to interpret it according to the question you're asking or the measure or what's being measured. And so there's a couple of questions you want to ask. The first one is, does the interval, so does the confidence interval, contain a value that implies no change or no effect? So the example I'm giving you for this is, if you look at a 95% confidence interval for a mean difference, then you have to ask, well, does the interval include zero? Because if there's no difference, that would be zero right? So if you're looking at effect sizes that have to do with averages or means, then if the interval contains zero, then the effect is not statistically significant. If zero is not within that confidence interval, then it means you have a statistically significant result at p is less than 0.05, so a 95% confidence interval. If you're looking at a ratio, an odds ratio or a relative risk, when you're looking at a ratio, that's a proportion, right? So wh what number would mean that there's no difference? That would be a, a ratio of one. If you have uh, a confidence interval for a ratio, if the interval contains the number one, then the result is not statistically significant. If the interval does not contain one for a 95% confidence interval for a ratio, an odds ratio or a relative risk, then that means that your result is statistically significant, different at a P of less than 0.05. So remember you were in the past or you were looking at a P value looking at p is less than 0.05. If you have a confidence interval, you don't even need the p-value to determine whether or not a, a, a result is, st is statistically significant or not. You look at whether or not the interval contains a value that implies either no change or no effect. So here's an example. 
In a study of immunotherapy in 61 children with asthma, 15 out of 53 immunotherapy patients showed partial remission on their need for medication. There was a very small number of dropouts in this study. In the placebo group, 12 out of 57 showed partial remission. When we figure out the odds ratio for the, for the immunotherapy group and the placebo group, the odds ratio comes out to be 1.5. So that is the result of the odds ratio for this particular study. The 95% confidence interval is 0.6 to 3.6. How would we interpret the findings of this study? Well, if we first just look at whether or not this odds ratio result of 1.5 is statistically significant or not, you have to first look to see whether the number 1 is included in the confidence interval. And the confidence interval, again, was 0.6 to 3.6. So think about that for a second to think whether or not one is included within that interval. Obviously, this result is, is not statistically significant. So there's a difference. It looks like the odds ratio of the exposed group over the non-exposed group. As far as partial remission, we saw the immunotherapy patients have a greater partial remission than the placebo group. The odds were 1.5 times more likely that the immunotherapy patients would have a partial remission as compared to the placebo group. Number one, that's how that result is interpreted. But now, if we, why do we say it's not statistically significant? Because the confidence interval includes the numeral one. And a ratio of one means there's no difference between the groups. 0.6 is less than one. So one is included in that confidence interval. Now, you would actually interpret then the confidence interval upper and lower limits, the lower limit would show us the smallest benefit. So in this case, that immunotherapy patients had 0.6 times greater partial remission than the placebo group. Up to a max of 3.6 would be interpreted, they could have as much as over three and a half times the partial remission rates, or almost four times if you just want to round it up, three and, over three and a half times the partial remission rate than the placebo group did. Okay, so now that we have just a little bit of an understanding again of the difference between p-values and confidence intervals, let's talk about intervention effects. So we're going to start with effect size. And you know, to deliver the highest quality of care to our patients and their families, we must know how effective our preventive, diagnostic, and therapeutic strategies really are. How do we know how large an impact any particular strategy will make on our patients' long-term health, confirmation of the disease diagnosis, or a decrease in length of stay? Well, we can look at effect size. An effect size is a standardized measure of the effectiveness of a treatment. The effect size goes beyond the question of how big is the effect to a question of how well did the intervention work. The effect size, again, is a standardized measure of effectiveness of the treatment and is the average difference between the groups in standard score form. That is, it's the ratio of the difference between the means to the standard deviation. So the, the equation is effect size equals the mean of the experimental group minus the mean of the control group divided by the standard deviation. Coe said that an effect size is exactly equivalent to a z-score of a standard normal distribution. For example, an, an effect size of 0.8 means that the score of an average person in the experimental group exceeded the score of 79% of the control group. 
The effect size is one type of summary statistic that's used in meta-analysis. Meta-analysis is a rigorous summary of the findings in a specific research area that uses statistical methods to compare outcomes across a range of studies. We're trying to show the average degree of the effect on the treated group or the experimental group versus the untreated or the control group. It helps give us an idea of how big an effect we can expect from the intervention studied, but it also helps us compare the relative sizes of the effects of the studies with different sample sizes. So effect size is independent of sample size. Use of effect size assumes the values for the control and the experimental groups are normally distributed. Effect sizes also should be calculated and reported for clinical studies in addition to meta-analysis. And this is not a commonly reported measure yet in nursing research, but I believe you'll be seeing an increased use of this measure over time. In addition, effect size should be reported with an estimate of its likely margin for error or with its confidence interval. If the confidence interval in contains zero, then the difference is not considered statistically significant. In general, a positive effect size represents improvement or movement in the predicted direction, and a negative effect size represents deterioration or movement away from the predicted direction. It's really not hard to calculate the effect size, even though it might look a little scary. But effect size is the mean of the experimental group, or group 1, minus the mean of the control group, or group 2, divided by the standard deviation of either group. And if your variances are similar, though, usually it's the control group standard deviation is usually used. It's considered the most pure, quote-unquote, um, as Coe says, um, since that population was not exposed to the intervention. If the variances are not similar, then the, you can also use the average pooled standard deviations of the two groups. And that's the square root of the average of the squared standard deviation. So that would be another denominator for the effect size calculation. So just as an example, let's say we have two groups trying to lose weight. Let's see how well diet A in the experimental group works as compared to the standard American Heart Association diet, let's say, in the control group. The studies completed and the results are as follows. The experimental group lost an average of 50 pounds during the study period, and the control group lost an average of 45 pounds. Now, the standard deviation of the experimental group was plus or minus 2.9 pounds, and the standard deviation of the control group was plus or minus 2.8 pounds. So 5 pounds was the mean difference between the groups. But was this difference a clinically significant effect of the intervention, in this case, diet A? So let's calculate the effect size. Effect size was 50 minus 45 divided by 2.85 equals 1.7. What I did was I took the standard deviations of both groups and averaged them. One was 2.9 pounds, one was 2.8, so when they're averaged, it comes out to 2.85. This result actually equals a large effect size when we look at definitions of what constitutes a large effect size or not. So in this case, anything over 0.8 is considered a large effect. A small effect is 0.2 a medium effect is 0.5, and a large effect is 0.8. And, and we're using what's called Cohen's D, small d, um, is traditionally the effect size unit, and that's how we interpret those. You can also, of course, find effect size calculators that you can download to your smartphone or to your PC, however, to your tablet. So where you just plug in your numbers and it gives you the effect size and some of them even help you interpret those. So that's effect size. Now we also have then effect measures. So we can report the differences between the experimental and the control groups using odds, odds ratios, relative risk, and absolute risk reduction.
and the effectiveness. So those are the differences between the groups. And we can look at the effectiveness of measures and we can interpret those using number numbers needed to treat, number needed to harm, number needed to screen, etc. So we'll talk about those effect measures in a minute. Measures of effect and association are typically plotted on what's called a two-by-two table. The table shows dichotomous outcomes. That is, there's two possibilities of the outcome or the event that we're interested in. For example, such as symptom present, symptom yes, symptom no. Disease status, they have the disease or they don't. Survival, alive or dead, etc. Those are dichotomous outcomes or events. So we can look at these dichotomous outcomes that are present in the exposed group or the experimental group and in the non-exposed group, also known as the control group. So if you take an evidence-based practice course or you take a clinical epidemiology course, you will become very familiar with two-by-two tables. These are also called contingency tables. You're going to see these tables in critique worksheets, and for many studies, you will want to practice using their numbers to plot into your own two-by-two table. When reading two-by-two tables, you have to be very careful, though, to identify the labels for the rows and the columns. I use some typical diagrams, but there's not one universal way to do it. So you have to be really careful that you're reading the tables correctly. For the most part, what you'll see in the handout is that I gave you a two-by-two table. The columns are labeled as the outcome or the event that you're interested in. And then the rows denote group membership, exposure, experimental group, or control group. Um, if you say intervention, yes, that would be the experimental group. Intervention, no, would be the control group. It's one way to label the columns. You could label it experimental group, control group. And then the events of the columns, did they have the event that you're interested in or not? Did they have a stroke or not? Yes, no, right? And so you should have four cells, uh, A, B, C, and D, and then you have row totals and you have column totals. If the two-by-two table is set up with the rows as the exposure or the group membership, the row totals then would be the total number of people in the experimental group and the total number of people in the control group, and the column totals would be the total number of people who suffered the event in the yes column or didn't suffer the event in the no column. The experimental event rate, therefore, would be the total number of people in the experimental group who suffered the event of interest, that would be in cell A, versus the total number of people in the experimental group who did not suffer the event, that would be in the no column, and in this two-by-two table is labeled cell B. The control event rate would be the total number of people in the control group who suffered the event or had the outcome you're interested in. That would be cell C of the 2 by 2 table. And cell D would be the total number of people in the control group who did not experience or suffer the event or the outcome that you're interested in. And that would be cell D. Differences between the experimental and the control group can be reported as odds odds ratios, relative risk or risk ratio, abbreviated as RR, relative risk reduction as RRR, or absolute risk reduction as ARR. Though not used as often in the literature, we can also report risk increases or benefits of an intervention using relative risk increase, absolute risk increase, relative benefit increase or absolute benefit increase. The calculations of these effects, by the way, don't change from the basic formula that I just discussed. Only the questions and the interpretations change. So let's talk about measures of association first. And those are what we call relative risk. Risk itself is defined as a proportion or a probability or a rate of the number of people in one group who suffered the event of interest divided by the total number of people in the group. For example, notice what happens to the risk 
as the population size increases, but the number of people experiencing the event stays the same. So for example, the number of people having an event out of the total population. If 25 people out of 100 in the total population have a myocardial infarction, an MI, 25 divided by 100 times 100 to put it in percentage terms is a 25% risk. I think you would all agree, right? But now what happens if you increase the total population? In that case, if 25 people out of 1,000 people have an MI, then notice that the risk obviously goes down because you have more people in the population. So the risk is only 2.5% in this particular population of MI. Clinically, the significance of the risk is different for different people. Therefore, the treatment approach to the same disease may vary depending on a variety of factors. So when using the 2x2 two two table, the experimental event rate, or the EER, is the number of people in the experimental or the exposed group who suffered the event of interest. In this case, it's cell A in the 2x2 two two table, which is yes event and yes exposure, divided by the total number of people in the experimental group, and that's A cell A plus cell B, because that's the row total for the experimental group. Thus, the risk of the event in the experimental group would be known as the EER, the experimental event rate, and that's calculated as A divided by A plus B, or the number of people having the event out of the total in the exposed population. The number of people in cell A divided by the total number of people in the experimental group. Previous example, 25 people out of 100 would be a 25% event rate. The control event rate, or the CER, is the number of people in the non-exposed or the control group who suffered the event. This would be cell C. That's the column of event, yes, yes event, but no exposure, divided by the total number of people in the control group, and that would be the row total for C plus D. Thus, the risk of the event in the control group, CER, is calculated as C divided by C plus D, or the number of people having the event out of the total control group population. The relative risk, RR, or the risk also known as the risk ratio, is the likelihood of developing the disease, experiencing the complication, etc., in the exposed group relative to the unexposed group. Relative risk is used in prospective studies such as randomized controlled trials and cohort studies. Relative risk is also just an umbrella term for risk ratio, odds ratio, odds are a type of risk measure, and rate ratio. And it ranges from zero to infinity. When both the experimental and the control groups have the same risk of the event occurring, the relative risk or the ra risk ratio will be one. And again, this is a crucial point to remember. When the experimental group and the control group have the same risk of the event occurring, the relative risk will be one. Relative risk is calculated then as EER divided by CER the risk of patients in the experimental or the intervention group experiencing the outcome. Remember, that's the experimental event rate. So you figure that out first. Then you divide it by the risk of the patients in the control group who have experienced the outcome or the control event rate, EER divided by CER. And that ratio is the risk ratio or the relative risk. Once you know the relative risk, you can determine how much the intervention or the treatment reduced the risk of the event in the experimental group as compared to the control group. So relative risk reduction, which is three R's, RRR, capital RRR, is the extent to which a treatment reduces a risk in comparison with patients not receiving the treatment of interest. A relative risk of one means, again, 
that both the experimental group and the control group had the same risk. The further away the relative risk is from one, the greater the strength of the association between the intervention and the outcome. Relative risk reduction, a very easy way to figure that out is to take the relative risk and subtract it from one. So the calculation is one minus the relative risk and that's the relative risk reduction. So for example, if the relative risk is 0.72, then the relative risk reduction is 0.28. So that'd be one minus 0.72 equals 0.28. That result would be interpreted as the experimental inter intervention reduced the risk of the event or the outcome by 28% as compared to the group that did not receive the experimental treatment. Now there are terms used to describe both the good and the bad effects of therapy. When the experimental treatment reduces the probability of a bad outcome, then that is known as a risk reduction. When the experimental treatment increases the probability of a good outcome, that's known as a benefit increase. And when the experimental treatment increases the probability of a bad outcome, then that's known as a risk increase. And for each of these terms, we can calculate an absolute effect and a relative effect. So we can have an absolute risk reduction and we can have a relative risk reduction. Let's talk again about interpreting the relative risk or the odds ratio. Remember that when both the experimental and the control groups have the same risk or the same odds, if you're using odds ratio, of the event occurring, the relative risk or the odds ratio will be one. So for example, if 10% of patients who take a new investigational drug die from sudden cardiac death, and 10% of patients who take the placebo die from sudden cardiac death, then the relative risk of dying from sudden cardiac death is 0.10 divided by 0.10. 10% over 10% equals one, right? So a relative risk of one means there's no difference between the groups. So it's saying that the intervention and the control conditions have the same effect. Therefore, assuming comparable groups in all other aspects, the risk or odds of the event, for example, death, will be the same in both groups. So there's no difference in outcomes. If the intervention makes a difference, then we expect to see a relative risk or an odds ratio that's either less than one or greater than one. The further away the ratio is from one, the greater the strength of the association between the intervention and the outcome of interest. Researchers will report the findings of their relative risk as a number, but in the discussion or the conclusion section of their report, they usually interpret that number in more common terms, such as, quote, the risk of dying was twofold in the control group. N-fold is equal to N times, and it's equal to N times 100%. Increased risk is equal to the relative risk minus 1 times 100. So a relative risk of 3.5 might be described as 3.5 fold or 3.5 times greater in one group versus the other. A relative risk of 3.5 can also be communicated as a 250% increase in or excess amount of risk. Again, it would be relative risk minus 1 times 100. So 3.5 minus 1 would be 2.5 times 100 is 250% increase when you're talking about increased risk. Another measure of association is known as the odds ratio. Some studies only report the outcome as the odds of the event. In certain study designs, for example, case control studies, retrospective studies, and cross-sectional studies, the sample, again known as a cohort, is selected because they share a certain trait or characteristic. Therefore, the event has already happened. This is another important concept to understand. We can't calculate the rate or the risk of developing the disease or event among the exposed and the unexposed because in these particular observational study designs, 
the researchers assign the exposed and the non-exposed groups based on whether the subjects experience the event or not. So because the groups are not all starting at the same point, we can't determine incidence. However, in these studies, we can still estimate the relative risk by using the odds ratio. So odds is a probability measure. And then ask the question, what is the chance of an event occurring compared to the chance of an event not occurring? If I'm interested in the odds of patient compliance and find that the odds are 10 to 1, that would translate as for every 10 patients who comply with medical treatment, I'll find one who did not. If I'm interested in the odds of buying a losing lottery ticket, and find that the odds are three to two, that would translate as for every three lottery tickets bought, two will be lo losers. Wouldn't that be nice? That would mean one in every three was a winner. The odds of winning the U.S. Powerball, Powerball lottery, by the way, are 80 billion to one. You could also say that odds is a proportion in which the numerator contains the number of times an event occurs, and the denominator includes the number of times the event does not occur. It is therefore the number of people having an event compared to the number of people not having an event. So note that this explanation is slightly different from the risk definition. Risk was the number of people experiencing the event compared to the total population in their respective group. When both the event and the non-event groups have the same odds of the event occurring, the odds ratio will be one. Make sense? This is an important point to remember. I know everything I've said so far is important, but we'll come back to that later. Let's take the previous example of the MI occurring in the population and see what the odds are rather than the risk of MI. The number of people having the event out of the total population. If 25 out of 100 people have an MI, then 75 people did not have an MI, right? The odds in this group of people is 25 divided by 75, or 0.33, which is 33%. Now remember the risk was 25%, because the risk is the number of people having the event out of the total population. The odds are the number of people having the event compared to the number of people not having the event. So in this case, the odds are 33% that people in this town of 100 people will have an MI. Now let's up that population like we did in the other example. If 25 out of 1,000 people have an MI, that means 975 people did not experience that event, right? So the odds in this group of people is 25 divided by 975. That's equal to 0.026 or 2.6%. Now remember the risk in this population was 2.5%. If 50 people out of 100 people have an MI, that means 50 did not experience the event. And the odds in this group of people would be 50 divided by 50, or one. So that would be interpreted as the odds of having an MI in this population is the same as the odds of not having an MI. Now the odds ratio is also known as the cross product ratio or the relative odds. And it's defined as a measure of the degree of association. It's the odds of exposure among experimental cases compared to, with the odds of exposure among the controls. Therefore, it gives you an indication of the degree of treatment effect. So using the cells in the 2 by 2 table, the calculation for odds ratio is A divided by B divided by C divided by D. Okay, so it is the cross product ratio. And that's actually equal to AD a times D divided by B times C. That's where the cross product ratio comes from. So if you just take cells A and D, multiply those together, and then take cells B and C, multiply those together, 
and divide those products, you get the odds ratio. Odds ratios are relative risk estimates. Both the odds ratio and the relative risk compare the likelihood of an event between two groups. The odds ratio will be similar to the uh, relative risk or the risk ratio if the event is rare. And again, the relative risk is the expected number of patients with an event divided by the total number of patients. Odds would be the expected number of patients with an event divided by the expected number of non-event patients. Here's another clinical example. During the flu season, you might see 10 patients in a day, let's say. One would have the flu and the other nine would have something else. So the probability or the relative risk of flu in your patient pool would be 1 out of 10, right? The number of patients with the disease divided by the total population. So that would be a 1% chance. But the odds would be 1 to 9, the number of patients with the event divided by the number of patients without the event. Note, though, that because the number of the events, in this case having the flu in your patient population is small, the relative risk and the odds ratio are close. You had 1 to 10 versus 1 to 9. Let's take another example, and let's compare again odds and risks. So let's say you're interested in looking at the probability of initiating breastfeeding among 1,000 new mothers. If 600 of the 1,000 new mothers ultimately breastfeed, then the probability or the risk, if you will, of breastfeeding is 600 divided by 1,000 or 0.6 or 60% when we put it in percentages, right? However, the odds of breastfeeding would be 600 divided by 400, or 1.5, or 1.5 to 1. So one and a half times more likely to breastfeed. And why 600 over 400? Because, again, odds are the number of people with the outcome, in this case breastfeeding, compared to the number of mothers who did not breastfeed. So if 600 out of the 1,000 breastfed, that meant that means 400 did not. So on average, 51 boys are born for every 100 births. So the odds of any randomly chosen delivery being that of a boy would be calculated as the number of boys, 51, divided by the number of girls, 49, right? That comes out to an odds ratio of 1.04. So you can see that when we interpret that, we're basically saying that the number of boys and girls that are born are basically the same, but boys have just a slight advantage, if you will. So the odds of 0.04, they have a 4% increase in births. When you're talking to patients, though, it seems easier for people to understand probabilities, risks, or, and relative risks than to grasp odds. So consider the fact if you were told the probability of having a boy was 51%, 51 out of 100 births, versus if you were told that the risk or the probability had doubled, that the relative risk was 2 of having a boy. Or what if somebody told you the relative risk was 0.05, was 0.5 of having a boy? So in other words, the risk or the probability had doubled or had halved. So which one of those would be easier for you to understand? Just think about that and realize that your patients are going to be the same way. Again, when we talk about the interpretation of the odds ratio, it's the same to an extent as when we talked about the interpretation of relative risk. An odds ratio of 1 means there's no difference between the groups. An odds ratio of less than 1 means that the event is less likely in the intervention group than in the control group. An odds ratio of greater than 1 is an increase in the risk of the event in one group over the other. If I said the risk, the odds ratio was 1.5, how would you interpret that? And you should say that it's interpreted as an increase, that the, that the risk of the event is 1.5 times the odds of the event occurring versus not occurring. For example, if you, the results are an odds ratio of 5.64, then that suggests that 
there's 5.64 times the risk with exposure. This was a study cited in Sheldon in 2000 that looked at nurse-led secondary prevention clinics and how they affected hospital admission as compared with the usual care. The conclusion was that a trial of nurse-led secondary prevention clinics significantly reduced the odds of hospital admission compared with the usual care. The odds ratio was 0.64. That is, there was a 36% reduction in the odds of hospital admission. That's how that was interpreted. Your odds ratio was 0.64. You subtract that from one and you get If it was a relative risk, it would have been a relative risk reduction. In this case, we're talking about a reduction in odds. 1 minus 0.64 was 0.36 times 100. So now you can say that's a 36% reduction in the odds of hospital admission. So that's how that's interpreted. All of these numbers reported in the EBP literature can get confusing. Visual presentation of results are sometimes easier for us to quickly get the gist of study outcomes. Forest plots give us a quick view of effect sizes or risks and the significance of the results. Individual or pooled study results included in a systematic review or a meta-analysis are shown as forest plots with a point estimate, that's the result from the study and that's usually depicted as a box with its associated upper and lower 95% confidence intervals. And these are called the whiskers. So if you've ever heard of a whisker and box plot, it's showing the result from a study plus the confidence interval, both the upper and lower limit. Relative risk and odds ratio results can also be depicted using a forest plot. In a meta-analysis, a diamond symbol is frequently used to show the summary statistic of the results of the pooled study data. The point estimates, also known as blobs, and therefore the forest plot sometimes is known as a blobogram, along with their associated 95% confidence intervals, tell you quickly the result of the study, either the effect size value, the odds ratio, or the relative risk, And they show you how precise the result was. And remember, you look at precision, look at how wide the confidence interval limits are. So how long are those whiskers away from the box? The closer the whiskers are to the box, the more precise the study. They also tell you whether the result was statistically significant or not. And that's evidenced by the point estimate or the confidence intervals that are either on or crossing what we call the line of no difference. In other words, that line either a zero, if it's if you're talking about averages or means, or the number one, if you're talking about ratios. That's the line where we're saying there's no difference between the groups. It's known as the line of no difference. And then we look at how homogenous the results were via how much the confidence intervals from the different studies overlap to be helpful to the reader. The forest plot should be labeled on the x-axis with something similar to treatment better and treatment worse or favors control and favors treatment on either side of the line of no difference. That'll help you interpret the results of the studies. But remember that you need to read the labels because the good side, good quote-unquote, is not always to the right of the line. For example, if the outcome is something you do not want, like death or pain, infection or readmission, then a point estimate on the side of the line of no difference that is labeled either treatment worse or favors control would indicate that the treatment is actually worse for the patients than the usual standard of care because it increased the odds or the risk of a bad outcome. If the point estimate is on the side of the line labeled treatment better or favors treatment, then that would indicate that the treatment decreased the odds or the risk of a bad outcome. So that would be desired, right? If the outcome is something you do want, let's say you're looking at treatment to stop smoking or shorter length of stay 
or breastfeeding continuance, then a point estimate on the side of the line labeled treatment better or favors treatment would indicate that the treatment made a difference. And if it was on the opposite side, then the reverse would be true. If the point estimate or the confidence intervals are on or cross the line of no difference, then the treatment made no difference in outcomes. So again, check the legends underneath each plot so that you can interpret the results correctly. I know that's redundant, but it's really important. So I gave you an example of a forest plot, and it lists 10 different separate studies. And on one plot, you see the line of no difference is set at one because you're looking at risk ratios. And what you see for each of the separate studies on the plot on the left, this is called a standard meta-analysis plot. And what you see is the point estimate, so the result from study one along with the lines going out from either side of, in this case it's a circle and not a box, those are the confidence intervals. And you can see the separate results from each of those studies. You can see that the point estimates for the most part are all on the side that favors treatment, but you do see some of the results the confidence intervals cross the line of no difference. And that means that those particular study results were not statistically significant. Because remember, you're talking about the range that we're 95% confident that the actual true population value lies. And if the line crosses one, that means that one is a potentially true population value. And that would mean there's no difference in the groups. Now, so the plot you see on the left is called a standard meta-analysis. You see the plot to the right is actually the same studies, but what they did is that they, that's called a cumulative meta-analysis. They started off with the first study, AZTCG study in 1987 with an N of 122 people. And in the cumulative plot, then they added the second study in that you see it in 1990 with 881 people. Now you're up to 1,003 for the population. So the cumulative meta-analysis adds each of the individual studies together to give you the final tally of how many people they looked at in this meta-analysis in the cumulative plot, notice that the final point estimate is exactly the same as you see in the overall summary statistic in the standard plot to the left. And that's because all they did in the cumulative was add those studies together. And if you can, if you notice, if you look at the cumulative plot, you can see much earlier that whatever this treatment was, that the treatment was good. And you can see it mu at a much earlier point when you look at a cumulative meta-analysis than you do in the standard. The absolute risk or AR is the observed or calculated probability of an event in the population under study. You calculate it by calculating the risk of the experimental group and you get an absolute risk of the event in the experimental group, and you can calculate the absolute risk in the control group and get the absolute risk of the probability of the event in the control group. The absolute risk reduction is a very easy mathematical calculation. You just figure out the CER risk, and you figure out the EER, and you just subtract them. And that gives you your absolute risk reduction. And it's the absolute value of the result. Researchers may report different measures, an odds ratio, a risk reduction, an absolute risk reduction, a relative risk reduction. Sometimes the same results sound better or bigger when presented in one form versus another. And I'll show you that in an example at the end of this particular podcast. Now we talked earlier about measures of clinical effectiveness. So a certain risk reduction may appear impressive, but how many patients would you have to treat before seeing a benefit? That's what the number needed to treat or NNT tells you. The NNT is a measure of clinical effectiveness, 
but it only tells you how many patients achieved a predetermined improvement, not the total number that may benefit. It's actually a reciprocal of the absolute risk reduction, and it represents the number of patients that you would need to treat to prevent one adverse outcome. Sometimes this is known as the number needed to prevent, an NP, but most often you see number needed to treat or an NT. It's the number of patients you would need to treat to prevent one adverse outcome or to achieve one additional favorable outcome. For example, what is the number needed to treat with oseltamivir to prevent one flu death? And again, number needed to treat is one divided by the absolute risk reduction. Conversely, the number needed to harm is the number of patients who, if they received the experimental treatment, would result in one additional patient being harmed compared to the control. Number needed to screen would be the number of people who need to be screened for a condition they are at risk for from either genetic or environmental factors, for example, to prevent one death or one adverse outcome. And you can see how this would give us an indication then of clinical effectiveness. So let's take a common clinical scenario and put all of this together. So this is pretty familiar. A drug company is advertising a 51% reduction in hip fractures with the use of their drug. That would be a huge reduction, right? And you would say, wow, that's really great. Let's look at the two by two table and let's look at how we would calculate then the different statistics. The columns are set up as hip fracture and no hip fracture. Those are the columns. And then the rows are set up as the membership group. So the treatment group or the experimental group and the placebo group or the control group. There were 11 people in the treatment group who had a hip fracture. There were 22 people in the placebo group who had a hip fracture. Now we're going to figure out the experimental event rate. So if you look at the two by two table, the total number of people in this study was 2,027. There were 1,022 in the treatment group. 11 had a hip fracture. 1,011 had no hip fracture. In the placebo group, so that row, 22 had a hip fracture and 983 did not have a hip fracture. And that was a total of 1,005 in the placebo or the control group. So to figure out the experimental event rate, we take the number of people who suffered the event in the experimental group, so in this case the event is a hip fracture, and we divide it by the total number of people in the experimental group. So the calculation would be 11 divided by 1,022, and then we would take that result and multiply it by 100 so that we could get a percentage. The experimental event rate comes out to 1.08%. That would be the experimental event rate, and that is the absolute risk of hip fracture in the experimental group. The control event rate would be the number of people who suffered a hip fracture in the placebo group or the control group divided by the total number in the control group. So that calculation would be 22 divided by 1,005 multiply that result by 100 and we get 2.19% as the control event rate. That is the absolute risk of hip fracture in the control group. Now let's look at the risk ratio or the relative risk. And what we would do is we would take the experimental event rate of 1.08 divided by the control event rate of 2.19 that comes out to 49%. So 49% is the relative risk of having a fracture in the treatment group as compared to the control group. The relative risk was a little less than half of the control group. The relative risk reduction, therefore, would be 1 minus 0.49. That gives you 0.51 times 100 and there's your 51% that this company is touting. The treatment reduced the risk of fracture by 51% relative to the control group. 
Now let's look at the absolute risk reduction. All we do here is subtract the experimental event rate from the control event rate. And in this case, we're just going to do control event minus experimental event. 2.19 minus 1.08 equals 1.11%. So that would be the absolute risk reduction would be interpreted as in 100 people, there would be 1.11 fewer fractures in the treated group compared to the untreated group. Now let's find out the clinical effectiveness of this drug. So we're going to do the number needed to treat. The number needed to treat is the inverse of the absolute risk reduction. So it's 1 divided by 0.0111 and you get 90. So the number needed to treat is 90. And that would mean that you would have to treat 90 patients with this drug to prevent one hip fracture from occurring. So now what do you think about this drug? Did the pharmaceutical company lie? Nope. They presented the data that sounded the best. An absolute risk reduction of 1.1% doesn't sound as impressive as a relative risk reduction of 51%. And look at the NNT. Those of you who will be primary care providers will have to pay particular attention to this number. Then you'll need to take these data and combine it with other evidence, your clinical judgment, your patient's situation, and your patient's preferences to make the best clinical decisions you can. And though an NNT of 90 sounds like a lot, look at the population we're dealing with. The elderly are the fastest growing segment in society. A number needed to treat of 90 may not be as prohibitive when we're talking of millions of people at risk. This is the end of part two, and in part three, we'll talk about diagnostic testing. Thanks for listening. You can find the show notes at nursingeducationexpert.com forward slash EBP002. Please share a comment about this episode at the same link. The Evidence-Based Practice Podcast is a production of nursingeducationexpert.com and is sponsored by CJT Consulting and Education. Have a great week.